Welcome to A Dream and a Fear. I'm your host, Max. And I'm Hugo. In this series of podcasts, we'll be diving into the lives, motivations, and legacies of some of history's greatest explorers. On today's episode, we are delighted to be joined by Michael Smith, renowned polar historian, award-winning journalist, and author of books on a number of polar explorers, including Shackleton, Oates, Crozier, as well as the hugely popular biography, Tom Crean, an unsung hero. Michael, thank you for joining us and welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure. Very nice to speak to you. Yes, again, to reiterate, Hugo, thank you very much for joining us, Michael. Um, The subject of today's episode of A Dream and a Fear is the polar explorer Tom Crean. Tom Crean spent more time in the Antarctic than both Scott and Shackleton combined and accomplished some of the most extraordinary feats of the heroic age of Antarctic exploration. Yet in spite of this astonishing fact, he still remains little known outside of polar history. Today, Michael will very kindly be telling us about Tom Crean's life and his unparalleled achievements in the history of polar exploration. To start, I think it would be good to go right back to the beginning. Michael, could you tell us a little bit bit about Tom Crean's early life? Yes, uh, of course. And I think that really puts it all into perspective because so much of uh, his background would dictate what happened to him in later life and one of the key reasons why few people have heard of him. Let me explain. He's born in 1877 in the west coast of Ireland in Kerry, beautiful part of the world. But at that time, um, the latter part of the 19th century, there was no work or prospects for certainly young lads. And so Tom did what so many teenagers did. Um, He had a very poor schooling. His only outlet really was working on the family farm. And so uh, in 1893, he joins the British Navy because it's a job and he works as a what they called a blue jacket, which is a straightforward uh, uh, seaman. And he, he, he advances up the ranks in a, in a normal course, completely um, uh, inauspicious career, except in 1901, he happens to be in New Zealand on a Navy ship when Captain Scott is taking discovery to the Antarctic for the first time. And that really is where the story starts because um, he volunteers to go with Scott. And um, uh, he, he even by chance, he joins this expedition because we know that what happened is whilst they were in New Zealand uh, refurbishing the ship and getting ready to sail off, one of Scott's sailors did what sailors are apt to do, got drunk, had a fight and uh, deserted. And so there was a vacancy and Crean stepped forward and volunteered. And, you know, when you say it, as I've just said it, as a, in a matter of fact way, it doesn't sound too much. But I think you have to bear in mind that this really was going into the unknown. I mean, we knew more about the moon than we did about the Antarctic in 1901. And here's Crean going without any uh, sense of how long he's going to be gone. Remember, there'd be no radio communications. And this expedition, it was the biggest expedition ever sent to explore the Antarctic. So it was about 50 men involved in it. And he would have been one of the uh, the ordinary characters who just pulled sledges. And I say just pulled sledges. Uh, if you haven't been to the Antarctic, that's no mean feat. And he turned out to be a remarkably strong, reliable, trustworthy and um, almost an indestructible character, and that would come on to his, his later life. And, and Scott obviously took to him uh, because he, he could see, even in this fairly rough uh, young Navy petty officer, there was something special about Tom Crean. And on that, Michael, the discovery was Crean's first major expedition. Could yeah. you tell us a little bit more about his exact role in that? Well, he would have been a member of the sledging teams, which was really designed to carry supplies and equipment across the Antarctic. And this part of the Antarctic at this point is is the Ross Ice Shelf was completely unknown. No one had ever uh, wandered into this place before. It's a vast sheet of ice. And when I say vast, it's the size of France. 
um, but it's constantly moving. And uh, Crean proved himself, as I said, to be thoroughly reliable, utterly dependable, and as loyal as the day is long. And uh, it's what you need when you're living on the margins of uh, very cold conditions. They had no idea what to expect when they plunged into the unknown. And, and Tom proved himself to be one of the most reliable men. And he, he, he stayed for two years on the expedition and was involved in some of the longest sledging forays of any of the men because they even kept a record of how many days they spent in the harness. And he proves to be one of the, the, the major uh, sledgers. So he was very, very highly regarded. And on that expedition, he will have met many of the men who became quite famous in the annals of their exploration. Obviously, Scott was there as the leader, but he also met Ernest Shackleton, who became arguably the most famous of all British polar explorers. Um, uh, he met Frank Wilde, who sailed on five expeditions to the Antarctic in the space of 20 years. And he met a man called Edgar Evans, who was inevitably called Taff because he was Welsh. And Taff Evans and Tom became like brothers. They were very, very close together. And of course, Evans very sadly died with Scott on the way back from the South Pole in 1912. But <clears throat> this was very much um, a who's who of British polar explorers and the photographs of them when they came back standing on the deck of, of Discovery. You can pick out the famous faces, basically, if you're interested in, in, in polar history. And so based on that, Michael, um, you mentioned that Shackleton uh, was there and it was the much, very much a who's who of, of polar exploration. I was wondering if you could tell us anything about Crean's early relationship with Shackleton, if, you, if we know anything. Uh, given that Shackleton is often uh, depicted as having a fractious relationship with Scott. One of the difficulties of being Tom Crean's biographer is that he left behind very, very little written material. This goes back to his uh, poor education. He, he didn't keep a diary. He wrote very few letters. And to all intents and purposes, he never gave a single interview in his life. And therefore, he, there is almost nothing to go on. So we don't know too much about the relationships. But clearly, he was a very popular man. He was a man of, of great humour, and um, he was often, you know, be cracking jokes, singing a song. So he would have been a very popular member of the team. But it is worth emphasising here very strongly that the Discovery Expedition really was um, a trial by error. These men were amongst the first people to ever set foot on the Antarctic continent. They were absolutely novices. They couldn't ski. They'd never learned how to build an igloo. Um, they weren't sure about the right food to eat. And, and Scott actually wrote in his diary um, just after they landed, and he admitted, our ignorance is total. So these were really on a very, very steep learning curve. But Tom Crean does seem to have adapted very quickly, possibly even better than Shackleton, who was a man who never properly learned how to ski, for example, yet became a great explorer. And so the relationship would have been, I think, quite a constructive one. But of course, we do know that in the Victorian Edwardian Navy, class distinction was absolutely supreme. And, and the, you know, the men were kept apart from the officers. Although Shackleton, to, you have to admit that Shackleton was a merchant seaman and therefore he would not, was not too hidebound by the, the, uh, um, the strictures of the Royal Navy. And so he would have probably rubbed shoulders very well with people like Crean. He certainly became a friend of Frank Wilde's and, and that, that friendship lasted to the end of his life. Thank you, Michael. So moving on to 1910 and the infamous Terra Nova expedition, could yeah. you tell us a little, little bit more about how Crean became involved in this? Well, interestingly, after discovery, Scott um, took a short time off and then went back into the Navy and was working in the North Atlantic fleet like any other uh, naval captain. And um, one of the first men that he recruited around about 1905-106 was Tom Crean. He obviously liked what he saw, and so they were recruited. Uh, Tom was recruited to work on one of uh, Scott's ships in the North Atlantic, and more or less you can say that they were never apart until the moment shortly before Scott died. They spent the rest of their lives and careers together. And we do know when Scott decided to go back to the Antarctic on the Renova expedition, the man he was with 
at the time was Tom Crean. They saw they were walking along a railway platform and they saw a newspaper headline saying that Shackleton had got to within 97 miles of the pole. And Scott turned to Tom and said, I think we better have another go, don't you think? And so he was there at the very beginning of this expedition and um, uh, he proved himself to be once again uh, an absolute stalwart and uh, more than just muscle. I mean, he was a strong man, but it was more than just muscle. He was utterly dependable and you could throw anything at him and he would always seem to come up smiling. Um, he was selected for the group which marched um, uh, around about 650 miles towards the South Pole and he played a very significant role here. He was an incredibly strong man physically, but more important, and this will be recognised by uh, mountaineers in particular, it was his mental strength. Nothing seemed to get on top of him. He always knew his own abilities, his own capacity. And so um, when they got to within about 150 miles of the South Pole in 1912, Shackleton, uh, sorry, Scott had eight men at his disposal, including himself. And he rather panicked at this point. He decided that although the, the expedition was set up in groups of four, that he wanted an extra man to be sure of getting to the pole. So he took one of the men, a man called Bowers, and took him out of Tom Crean's team and turned for the pole. Tom was ordered back with an officer called Lieutenant Evans and another um, experienced seaman called Bill Lashley. Um, and the big question always is, why didn't Scott pick Tom? Because here you are on the polar plateau, roughly 150 miles from the South Pole. And of those eight men, there's a very strong case for saying that Tom Crean was the most strongest of all those men. He was physically in better shape than anybody else. Evans and Lashley, by contrast, had been marching farther than any of the others. Um, and they were absolutely played out. Now, my own view is that if Scott wanted to take his best team to the, to the South Pole party, he would have taken Crean. But I think he sent Tom back as an insurance for getting Evans and Lashley home. Because they were already exhausted, um, he needed Tom's extra muscle and also his um, durability. And so they turned around 750 miles from home, shook hands with Scott, and Tom was in tears because I think he banked on being at the pole. And then they departed. And so one group of five went one way and the three men went the other. And this um, episode, what happens next, is one of the reasons why we've heard very little about Tom Crean's life, is that the disaster which befell Scott, we know that Scott and his four companions all died on the way back, tragically. They reached the pole and died on the return journey. What happens to Tom Crean is completely overshadowed by the tragedy of Scott. It seems it's understandable now, but when you look at it in isolation, it's a terrible um, uh, 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 misjustice in my view. So. What happens is they have to walk 750 miles with two ailing companions. Um, they have several very, very hairy escapades. And Evans, the officer, is the only one who can navigate. And that's important on the very flat part of the Antarctic where they were. He develops scurvy and deteriorates very, very badly and is pretty much on the brink of dying. And, and before he passes out, <clears throat> he orders Crean and Lashley to leave him behind and save themselves. And they refuse the order, not something you do very often in the Royal Navy, you refuse the order of an officer, but they did. And they got to within 35 miles of base camp, which is around about just over 50 kilometres. Um, and by this stage, Lashley was also exhausted. The food had run out and Evans was comatose. 
And so Tom took the extraordinarily brave decision to leave Lashley with the stricken Evans and cover the last 35 miles on his own without a tent or a sleeping bag and the weather in the Antarctic is notoriously changeable. It changes at the drop of a hat. He also had no food apart from a couple of biscuits and some sticks of chocolate and he set off alone across some very treacherous crevasse-ridden territory and marched the last 35 miles on his own. And there is, <laughs> there is one rather black, blackly humorous story which I, I love to tell is that he didn't stop for a rest in the conventional sense and he, he said that he sat down on a piece of ice at one point because he needed a breather and he thought he'd have his rations such as they were biscuits and chocolate and as he was munching his way through this he picked up his last biscuit and was about to eat his last item of food and instead of eating it he put it back in his pocket and what that tells you is something about Tom Crean. He was absolutely sure he was going to survive. He wasn't going to give up and he might need that extra bit of sustenance, however small a biscuit would be. He might need that bit of extra sustenance to get him over the line. And he walked for 18 hours and stumbled into the base camp, collapsed on the floor and I guess there must be a God because the only doctor for 400 miles happened to be in the hut that day. Everybody else was out in the field somewhere. And uh, the doctor gave him a tot of brandy to waken him up and he promptly threw up all over the doctor, which was not exactly a nice response. Um, and as soon as he'd come round, he volunteered to go back out onto the ice to rescue Evans and Lashley. Sensibly enough, the doctor refused and he went on his own and rescued them and Tom recovered. And Evans lived by the skin of his teeth and he never forgot uh, Tom Crean for saving his life. Um, and I, I know the family and I know they still talk in awe of Tom Crean because, you know, as their children said to me once, you know, we're only here because of Tom Crean. Our father was dying. Um, and uh, he saved my father's life. So Tom's um, uh, contribution to the Terra Over expedition is extraordinary, but it's completely overshadowed by the disaster to Scott. And that's, that's not a complaint, that's just an observation. Well, I mean... And of course... Sorry. Sorry, no, Michael, the story about the, the, the chocolate and the biscuits is just unbelievable. Um, but I was just wondering then if you could expand on what happened after. So obviously Scott and yeah. uh, Scott and, and had perished and unbeknown to Tom Crean. What happened then? Sure. Well, the appalling state of Crean, Lashley and Evans alerted everybody else at base camp that Scott might be in trouble because he was coming back over much the same territory. Um, and so they waited with bated breath for Scott to come in. And of course, they waited for six weeks and he never came. And uh, by that stage, the Antarctic winter had set in. They weren't going out in that. And it was just assumed that Scott was dead, which he, he was. And so they waited for six months in the hut. And then Tom Crean joined the search party to find the bodies. And sure enough, they did. They found three of the men, uh, Scott, Wilson and Bowers. Oates's body was never found and his friend Taff Evans was never found. And Tom did something which your Irish listeners will recognise. It was decided that um, they would bury Scott, Wilson and Bowers where they lay. They weren't going to bring them back to the UK. And so they took all their personal effects and letters and diaries and lots of stuff and then decided to collapse the tent and build a cairn of snow over the top say a few words over the cairn and then head off well tom as i said did something very irish he ducked into the tent before they collapsed it and kissed scott's forehead it's something which the irish do to corpses before at a wake and um sure enough um, it was uh, it was a, a, a very Irish thing to do, 
he came out, they collapsed the tent, built the cairn, uh, had a very short service and then headed back and he came back to the UK in 1913 and was given the Albert Medal, which is the then the highest award for gallantry uh, by the King at Buckingham Palace. And uh, you might think that for most people, that would be enough polar exploration for one life, but um, not Tom Crean, because within months of uh, coming home, he was recruited by Shackleton on the famous Imperial Transantarctic Expedition, which is often known as the Endurance Expedition. Wow. Um, I was just wondering, before we jump into to Shackleton, yeah. could you explain or why you think there was such a fondness between Crean and Scott? I mean, that story you told about uh, finding Scott's body is, is incredibly moving. And I was just wondering if you could expand on what you think made that bond so strong. I think Scott had enormous respect Tom Crean. Scott also had enormous respect for what he called the lower decks as it was which was the phrase they used in those days but I think he saw in Tom Crean special qualities it didn't matter that he was Irish or that he was badly educated and a bit rough around the edges Tom was a man on whom you could pin your life and I don't think you can get any better recommendation than that and and Scott saw in Crean, these qualities. And he was as near as you're going to get for any human being, absolutely indestructible. And and Scott recognised those, those qualities. And I think he recognised that he had at his, at his fingertips a very special man. And that's why he was amongst the first to be chosen to go on Terra Nova. And he was the man that I believe he trusted with the lives of Evans and Lashley. And I mean, you can dissect it as much as you want, but the bottom line is that Tom Cream was the difference, the difference between life and death for Bill Lashley and Lieutenant Evans. Wow, fantastic. And I, I was just wondering before, before we jump into Shackleton as well, if you could just contextualise yeah. what was going on, because obviously some of our listeners might not be aware of the fact that there was these these various expeditions going on. You mentioned yeah. before Shackleton uh, driving Scott then to have another go at the pole. I was just wondering if you could give a general setting of the scene of polar exploration, just so our listeners are yeah. up, to, up, to, up to date, so to speak. Sure. Um. By 1913, um, there wasn't much left to discover in the Antarctic in the sense that Roald Amundsen, the greatest of all polar explorers, and Captain Scott had stood at the South Pole. Um, and uh, people were looking around for other things to do. And Shackleton at this point was a very restless character. He hadn't got on well with Scott over the years. They'd clashed. Over, over their base camps in, in the Antarctic. And of course, he'd been thwarted just 97 miles from the pole in 1909. So Shackleton was a restless figure, very anxious to get out. And he came up with this hugely ambitious scheme to make a transcontinental crossing, i.e. walk from coast to coast across the Atlantic, uh, the, the Antarctic, I'm sorry, across the Antarctic. Um, this was a massively ambitious, uh, very audacious, and um, uh, one can only say that it would need the toughest of men to go on that. And sure enough, one of the first men that Shackleton recruited was Tom Crean, and the other, of course, was Frank Wilde, who was his right-hand man. So the context was very much that this was the last great journey of mankind in the Antarctic. That was the, the, the thought. It was put together in a bit of a hurry. It was fairly badly organised. Um, there was no official funding for the operation. All the money came from private individuals. And they sailed from England on the very day that Britain declared war on Germany in 1914. So it was um, not an easy operation at all. And the first serious port of call was the island of South Georgia, just off the coast of South America. And when they got there, 
the whaling station people, um, South Georgia was a whaling station in those days, um, they told Shackleton, don't go into the sea this year, the ice is really bad. But he ignored them and he took the endurance into the ice. And there were 28 men on board. Tom was the second officer and one of Shackleton's real right-hand men in every sense of the word. You could depend on Tom, you could trust him with your life. Um, and Frank Wilde and Tom Cream were the mainstays of that expedition um, as men you could trust and rely on to do pretty much anything you needed. Now, we know that what happens is that the ship goes into the Waddell Sea, which is due south from South America, which is a graveyard for ships. Um, it's a gigantic circular um, basin about a million square miles of ice. The ship is trapped within a month and it's never released. And it's rather sad that Endurance made only one voyage in its life and that was to the bottom of the Weddell Sea because the ship was crushed over a period of about 10 months and it sank in uh, Jan um, November 1915. And that was where Shackleton's brilliant leadership took over. He was a great man and he, um, he instilled great confidence in his men. They trusted him, they loved him, but he needed the right hand men like Tom Crean and Frank Wilde to get him through this really difficult period. It, it is worth you know just emphasizing here when, when I say the ship was crushed, you had 28 men, a mixture of explorers like Shackleton and, and Crean, You've got scientists, you've got sailors, um, you've even got an artist, um, you've got a, a, a photographer. These men, they weren't all explorers. When the ship was crushed, they went onto the ice and put up their tents. Again, you say it quickly, it doesn't sound very much. The ice of the Weddell Sea is about 10 feet thick, three meters or so thick. Beneath their feet, it's 11,000 feet of water. Um, and it's constantly moving. And whilst they were on the ice, so from January uh, 1915 until April 1916, they drifted, by, carried along by the currents, for over 2,000 miles on this 10 feet ice flow, 10 foot thick ice flow. And at that point, Many of the men struggled very badly with psychological impact. Any, any uh, medical problems you had were exacerbated. The food was bought. They had plenty of food, but it was essentially boring. Um, they had very little exercise. It's dark for four months of the year, totally dark, 24 hours a day. Uh, it was a real trial. It makes the recent lockdown of um, during COVID seem almost pleasant. Um, they had... Uh, almost nowhere to go, no radio communications. Nobody knew they were there. Nobody was coming to rescue them. They had to rely on their own wits. And then once again, Crean particularly stands out as being one of the most steadfast of uh, Shackleton's companions. And uh, he was one of those men that you could throw anything at and he would come up smiling and, and do it for you. Um, he was tough. He took some of the, they had to make some really tough decisions. For example, they took a lot of dogs with them, which were meant to be crossing the Antarctic. There's no use for dogs at sea. So they had to shoot them, um, which wasn't a very pleasant thing because the men became very attached to the animals uh, with so much isolation, they became very attached. Uh, but Tom uh, was capable of carrying out that rather grisly task, him and Frank Wilde. Um, they didn't enjoy it, but it was something that had to be done. And so by April 1916, this huge drift around the Weddell Sea had carried the, the party north into slightly warmer water. And I say slightly, I mean, I mean that in relative terms, it's still very icy. Um, but they were then able to launch their boats and they, they had three lifeboats and... Tom Crean was in effect in charge of the smallest boat 
and this was a very unseaworthy little vessel it wasn't meant for open seas it was meant for short haul uh, trips around the harbour um, they were pulling pushing their way through icebergs storms they didn't sleep for seven days and um, at one stage Crean's craft was lost and they thought it had sunk it had been because it was it was only 20 what's uh, just over six meters long and they thought it had sunk and they were all fearing the worst and then from sort of behind one of these mountainous antarctic waves Crean came through waving and cheering shouting all well lads that was the sort of man he was he was he was a reassurance when they eventually reached their port of call it was a place called elephant island but elephant island is just a huge chunk of rock about seven or eight miles wide sticking out of the southern ocean it's not on any sea routes nobody knew they were there like i said they had no radio and when they reached elephant island they took Crean's boat, it being the smallest and the lightest, shackled and transferred to it. And so Crean was amongst the first to land on Elephant Island. And interestingly, of the 28 men, Shackleton said, and he didn't mean this in a nasty way, this is a matter of fact, that 10 of them were off their heads. By that he meant, I suspect, psychologically struggling. Others had injuries and frostbite and hunger and just sheer exhaustion. One of the few men still standing was Shackleton, Wilde and Tom Crean. As I said, that nobody was coming to get them and Shackleton devised another wildly ambitious scheme to take the largest of the boat, the James Caird, um, across the Southern Ocean. Uh, absolutely mad idea. But on the other hand, they had no choice. Uh, just for a bit of perspective, the Caird is... 22 feet long, so seven metres long or so. They raised the gunwales very slightly by about uh, just under a foot and they put a tonne of rocks to give it some ballast. Uh, they didn't have any covering for it, so they took some old sail material and, and covered it over and um, they set off. And curiously enough, from the Irish perspective, they left Elephant Island on Easter Monday, 1916, which of course was the day of the uprising in Ireland. Um, not that they knew that. And they were at sea for 17 days, a, a journey of over 800 miles, 1200 kilometers or so. Um, and uh, once again, Crean is a stalwart. Um, they, for example, they found him one night he was at the wheel, uh, uh, not sorry, not the wheel, at the tiller, um, steering the ship in pitch black with the waves lashing over him. And the only sight they could see was the glow of Tom Crean's pipe. And in between this tumult, he would burst into song. They couldn't understand a word he was singing because he was singing in Irish. He was an Irish speaker. Uh, and it's both Scott uh, both Shackleton and Worsley noted in their diaries that, uh, you know, Crean is a great reassurance. We just have no idea what he's singing about <laughs> because he was singing in Irish, <laughs> what they call Shanos, the old way. And uh, he uh, he was still standing after 17 days as they landed in South Georgia. But uh, this story doesn't really have any um, nice, neat uh, ends to it because... They had landed on the south coast of South Georgia and the whaling stations where they knew the ships were, were on the north coast. But in coming ashore, they'd lost the rudder to the James Caird and therefore the boat was reduced to being effectively a rowing boat. They didn't have the strength to stand, let alone row 150 miles around the island. And so they rested up as best they could and Shackleton decided to take Frank Worsley, who was the captain of Endurance and the man whose incredible navigation had got them across the Southern Ocean, and of course, Tom Crean. And these three men were going to walk across South Georgia. Michael, just, yeah. just, just before we get on uh, to the uh, crossing that they had yeah. in South Georgia, 
uh, for many of us, you know, it's hard to contextualize the magnitude of the cha challenge faced on that crossing. In your mind, is there a comparable nautical achievement? The journey of the James Caird is arguably the greatest sea voyage of all time. It's very, very hard to find a, a comparison. The nearest might be um, with Captain Bly in the 1790s after the mutiny on the Bounty, when he sailed for 4,000 miles uh, in the Pacific Ocean. But you have to hurriedly say, uh, uh, he was sailing in very temperate warm waters and they were able to stop every now and again and get fresh water and get some fresh food. And that's not in any way to minimise what he did. That's not what I'm saying. But I don't think there is a journey in history that matches the journey of the James Caird. And um, I, I think that I know people who've tried to replicate it and they couldn't do it. Um, and you just stand back in awe at how they did it. And you stand back in awe once more when you realise that at the end of that journey, Tom Crean is still standing and he's still smiling. He's still ready to go for the next chapter. Wow, fantastic. So given that, could you then move on to uh, what you were just about to explain to us, which is yeah. not only did they do arguably the greatest nautical crossing ever, but then they had to cross the, the island itself. What faced them here now is in, this is May 1916, what faced them is the island of South Georgia. It's a brutal place. It's beautiful, but brutal. The weather is very fast changing. It's very mountainous. Average height is 6,000 feet. So you know, 2,000 meters, that's the average height. Some of them stretch to 9,000 feet. It's full of glaciers and nobody but nobody had ever been into the interior of South Georgia before. There were no maps. They had no idea where they were going, except in a general sense. They decided in what you might regard as being reckless that they would travel light. The journey was about 40 miles. So let's say 60 kilometers across completely unknown territory. And the weather is constantly changing. They decided to travel light. So they ditched the sleeping bags, they ditched the tent, and all they took was a tiny little stove and some food. And they stuck the food, each of the three men, put the food into a spare sock and put the sock around their necks so that the food wouldn't freeze. Crossing glaciers, as you know, all your listeners will know, those of you who've done it, um, is a perilous business at the best of time. You slip and slide all over the place. Anyone who fell and broke an arm or a leg was consigning themselves to death. And so it was decided they would take the uh, nails from the side of the James Caird and hammer them through the soles of their boots to give them some sort of grip on the ice. But of course, the what they called nails, they were probably screws, were made of brass and they wore away quite quickly. But it did, did give them a little grip as they, um, as they marched across the ice. And they set off at three o'clock in the morning because the moon was up and it gave them a bit of light. Remember, they wanted to do this in one hit, so 40 miles across unknown territory with very sparse rations and no tent, no sleeping bag. And uh, at one stage, they got completely lost at the top of a, a mountain pass. We don't know the precise height, maybe five, 6,000 feet. Um, and dusk was coming. And with dusk comes the the temperatures collapse on South Georgia, you, you'd be looking at minus 30, minus 40. And Shackleton knew that if they stayed up at that height, they were going to die. And so he decided they had to get down quickly and they began to scramble down the slope, but they weren't getting there fast enough. And so they stopped and they thought, how are we going to get down faster? And the only equipment they had with them was an ice axe and 50 feet of rope. So 15 metres of rope. They twirled the 15 metres of rope into three little mats, if you can call them mats, rather like a placemat for a cup. And then they sat on these mats together, huddled together and wrapped their arms and legs around each other and kicked off downhill like the tobogganists. Um, they had no idea where they were going, whether they were going to hit a rock, 
whether they were going to go over into a crevice or whether indeed they were going to go into the sea because they genuinely didn't know where they were. Um, they didn't, fortunately. Um, and the only casualty was uh, Frank Worsley's trousers were ripped. And in, in, in the way that these men, the spirit of these men is, is summed up because Frank Worsley standing there with his trousers ripped, he hadn't had a wash for over a year, hadn't shaved properly for much the same time, was bedraggled, filthy, would have stunk to high heaven. He turned to the others and said, what if there are any women there? <laughs> but that was rather typical of their spirit. Um, they didn't need to worry because there weren't very many women on South Georgia at that point. Um, and they stumbled into the whaling station after 36 hours without a break. And we have um, a couple of photographs of them in the early days of being there. And the intriguing thing is that Tom Crean is still smiling. When they arrived at the whaling station manager's office, they were ushered in and given a cup of tea and made to sit down and rest. And these, were, these men would have looked like skeletons. They would have lost a huge amount of weight. They were absolutely filthy, dirty. And the first question they asked is the war over? Because at this point, May 1916, they were amongst the few people on the planet who didn't know there was a war going on. And they'd missed, amongst other things, um, the Gallipoli campaign, they'd missed the Easter Rising in Dublin, and the Battle of the Somme was a, about a month away. So they were literally cut off from the rest of the world. That illustrates just how cut off they were. But of course, this still left the 22 men they left behind on Elephant Island, because when they sailed the James Keir, they couldn't take them all, particularly the ones who were unwell. And so they left 22 men on the beach at Elephant Island. And the long and short of it is it took four and a half months to get back. And they made four attempts. And Tom Crean was on all of them with Shackleton, as was Frank Worsley. And this was a desperately challenging time for them all. And we know from contemporary accounts that Shackleton uh, took to the drink a little bit. I think the stress was getting to him, which is understandable. And one man who wrote a book about the, um, who lived, as an Englishman who lived in South America, remembers them. And he said that Tom Crean looked after him like a brother who made sure that he didn't descend into melancholy and that he had to keep a focus. So Tom Green was more than just a big strong boy. He was actually extremely helpful. And when they eventually got back to Elephant Island in August, August 30, 1916, all 22 of the lads were still alive, thankfully. Frank Wilde had stayed behind and was in charge. And there's a lovely personal note, which I always like to tell. As they were rowing ashore and the men were leaping up and down with joy, as you, as you might imagine, after all this isolation. And they didn't know, of course, that, that the cared had made it through. For all they knew, they were at the bottom of the sea. Well, as the little rowing boat was being rowed ashore to pick them up, Tom Crean, a sailor to his boots, was standing at the front of the little craft, hurling packets of tobacco to the men because he knew that sailors are addicted to smoking or were addicted to smoking because in those days one of the perks of being a sailor was you got very very cheap tobacco and so they were all it was very rare to find someone who didn't smoke and he knew that they would be addicted and that little human touch even in this moment of great exhilaration that they'd rescued the men tom still remembered the little things like the lads probably needed a fag and i think that's a lovely lovely story and they came back to South America in early September 1916. And Tom Crean effectively retired from being an explorer then. He came back to the UK, went into the Navy and fought in the First World War. He was married. He actually, by coincidence, he was stationed in West Cork. Um, and he made a short trip up to Kerry to marry a lady from his own village. And he stayed in the British Navy until 1920, um, when he retired after 27 years and went back 
to the village and he comes from a lovely little village in the west of Ireland called Alan Scor. And um, he stayed there. But the reason that you may not have heard about or many people may not have heard about Tom Crean's uh, life story is that he came back to Ireland during Ireland's War of Independence against the British occupation. And um, this was a very, very tough time for everybody, understandably. Um, it was particularly tough for those men who had fought in the First World War because they'd been wearing British uniforms, and even for sailors like Tom Crean, who, although he'd been exploring in the Antarctic for three times, was nonetheless in the pay of the British Navy. This was a deeply unpopular thing to do, particularly in Kerry, which is a fiercely uh, nationalist area. When he came home, his brother, who was a sergeant in the police force in the Republic of Ireland, the Royal Irish Constabulary, was ambushed and shot dead because the edict was that anybody serving the crown was a legitimate target. And so from that day onwards, Tom Crean vowed to keep a vow of silence. He never spoke to a soul about his exploits. This man who'd done so much with Scott twice, with Shackleton, and had adventures coming out his ears. More, he crammed more into his life than most people would cram into their lives. But he never spoke about it. And in the 1920s, he opened a pub called the South Pole Inn. And people used to come to the South Pole Inn to have a jar with a famous explorer. And he would, if you'll excuse the pun, he would melt into the background. He didn't want to know. And I interviewed his daughters, who are now dead, sadly, very elderly daughters. And I asked them about their father, obviously, and what he had done when he came back. And they both said, without any hesitation, he never spoke to us about it either. So when Tom Crean died in 1938, he quite literally, it's not metaphorical, he quite literally took his story to the grave because he never gave an interview, he didn't talk to his family, he didn't talk to customers in the pub, and he never, ever spoke to a soul about what he'd done. And it was for the next 80 odd years, his story was pretty much unknown, except to a few, obviously the family knew about him, but a few people who were interested in polar history. And I came along and wrote my biography of him, An Unsung Hero. And I'm delighted to say it was a great success and it's, it was the, became in Ireland anyway. They, they took him to their, to their hearts and uh, the book became the number one bestseller. The story is now on the curriculum in the Irish schools and uh, the book has been translated into various languages, including Chinese, not by me, I might add hastily. Um, and uh, Tom Crean is now very much on the map. So I think uh, possibly the title Unsung Hero <laughs> needs to be revised, but it's been an enormous pleasure bringing this story to life. And there is only one biography of Tom, um, and it's been a joy to tell the story um, in, in a way and to tell people about someone that they genuinely don't know much about and he certainly deserves his story being told well yeah I think we can all definitely agree with you I mean what a remarkable story and a, a phenomenal phenomenal life um, uh, and thank you Michael for, for bringing us through that, that whirlwind tour of all the incredible feats that, that he achieved um, I just wanted to now tie things up by moving on to yeah. three kind of general questions that we like to ask every sure. every guest to tie together some of the the themes about the individuals and their motivations uh, involved in these 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 incredible expeditions so the first one we'd like to put to you is what do you think were the most important qualities and motivations that that allowed tom crean to achieve what he did in the field of polar exploration um, it's hard to pick one outstanding quality, but I think his formidable mental strength is is what uh, makes him stand out from the others. I mean, they you know, mountaineers will often say that the 
Um, it's not the physical strength, it's the mental strength. Um, and he was essentially an optimistic man. I mentioned during my talk that he he was he was obviously he, he regularly smiled at people. He he sang songs. He was a cheerful, optimistic man, and that inspired others. People looked up to him, even though he didn't have the education. He wasn't an officer, uh, but he set the example. So I think his his greatest quality was that mental strength and his utter reliability. He was, as I mentioned earlier, as near to being in, as indestructible as any human can be. Michael, on that, um, we obviously live in a completely different world to the one Tom Crean lived in. Uh, can you tell us a bit about, you know, the most valuable lessons Tom Crean's life teaches us and, you know, youngsters around the world today? I think the most valuable thing I can say about Tom is that he's an inspiration. I think I, I, I do quite a lot of presentations to schools, particularly in Ireland, and, and children ask this question a lot. And I say the same thing to them. It goes to show that what an ordinary man can do extraordinary things. And he is an inspiration. He can, you know, you don't have to be born with a silver spoon. You don't have to go to Oxbridge. You don't have to have been gone to Eton, although it helps if you're a prime minister, I suppose. Uh, but you don't have to be led. Tom's great lesson is that he achieved everything that he did achieve by his own merits, on its own merits, by his own endeavours. Brilliant. Thank you. And one final one. Uh, if you had the opportunity to sit down and have a drink with Tom Crean today, perhaps at the, the South Pole Inn in, in Anna's school, what would be the one thing that you would ask him? What would be your one burning question? <laughs> the, bursting, the burning question would be, what are you having, Tom? Because <laughs> I would like to sit down with him for hours. Um, there are so many questions, so many questions. It's very, very hard to pick out one. I suppose... The obvious one is, where did you get the strength from, both mm. mental and physical strength? You know, is it, can I buy some? You know, um, uh, he, he is um, <clears throat> a man we should look up to. So, I, as I say, I think the first, the first question is, what are you having? And I'd want to sit down and talk to him forever. I think that wraps up very nicely um, the, the, the hour that we've had with you, Michael. It's been an absolute pleasure. I think we're both from myself and Max, we're incredibly lucky to have you on as our first guest. Um, so thank you very much. Yeah, and I'd just like to reinforce what Hugo said. And I mean, the more people that, that hear this story, the better. And so thank you for coming on today. And also thank you for, you know, your, your brilliant biography. That's, that's uh, as you say yourself, been an, an incredible way to get his story uh, more well known around the world. And um, yes, maybe in the future we can have you on to talk about one of your other books, perhaps Crozier or someone. Yeah, by all means. Well, you know where I am. You have you have all my details. Uh, I, I'd like to wish you all the best of luck with your endeavours. I hope it works well for you. Um, and uh, don't hesitate to get in touch if you think I can be of any help.